So we're just going to touch part of that story today by looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 15. If you don't have a Bible, you can grab one in the seat back in front of you. And if you do, uh, you can join me on this page. We're going to be on page 1021. 1021. So um, this is the second to last chapter in the letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to the Corinthians. uh, Ancient Corinth, not far from Athens. Paul helped start a church there just decades after Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. And uh, he's writing this letter to them to try to help them uh, regain their form, so to speak. They had fallen out of form. They had uh, fallen out of step with the peculiar wisdom of Christ. So we've named this series Moving in Step with the Peculiar Wisdom of Christ. This can happen to us, too. We can have a great start, and then we can get going for a few years, and then we can sort of fall out of form and, and fall out of step with the wisdom of Christ, which is uh, the wisdom of the gospel, which is the wisdom of God that through death comes new life, life more powerful than could be possible even before death. And so we're going to study that today in my, as I've been saying, my favorite chapter in the entire Bible, 1 Corinthians 15. So I'll share a little bit more because within this chapter, this particular section is uh, my favorite section of my favorite chapter in the Bible. So, um, it's very personal to me if you are on our newsletter and you read uh, my, my note for this week. Uh, it's a super personal. It's a sermon that's 15 years in the making. And uh, so in a lot of ways, it's been a weird week because I feel like I didn't need to prepare at all. I have so many things I'd like to say. Um, but in another way, I want it to be fresh. The Word of God is fresh every time you come to it. So actually, most of the things I'll say today are sort of fresh, new ideas that God's brought to mind that he didn't, hadn't brought over the last 15 years. So if you don't know my story, I'll just tell it to you real quick. It's the story um, of this church as well, including our name, Sidera. So um, <sighs> 15 years ago, 2007, um, I wasn't a pastor back then. I I didn't even think I'd be a pastor. I was a follower of Jesus, uh, which is important to the story, uh, because I already had a relationship with God through the Spirit, and um, it was St. Patrick's Day 2007. I get a phone call from my father. I didn't pick up because I was at a St. Patrick's Day parade with my friends. I was uh, 24 years old at the time. Sorry, Dad can't talk. He called a second time. Dad, seriously, I can't talk right now. I'm having too much fun. Uh, third time he calls, and I said, I better pick up. This is unlike him to pocket dial three times. Um, sure enough, it was not a pocket dial. He told me, first words were, your sister Kim has been in a bicycling accident, and she's dead. Kim was 26 years old. She was full of life in a way that very few are full of life, and so to hear that she now had no life uh, was, to say the least, disorienting. I walked into this back alley and I screamed at God for 25 minutes. How could you, God, let this happen? I thought you were a good God. I thought you were a powerful God. I thought you protected those who love you, those who profess your name. And and after about 25 minutes, um, completely fatigued and uh, disoriented in every way, I sat down on the ground. I couldn't even stand and sobbing. Um, I just sat there and then all of a sudden, all of that grief, um, all of that confusion uh, was wiped away in a moment of uh, clarity. My vision went white and I heard a message from my sister Kim. Um, it wasn't an audible voice. It wasn't uh, a vision. But I received a message. I, I describe it as a, a download, like a matrix download. Like I le- learned Kung Fu in 30 seconds. And it was like this 15-minute message that she wanted me to share with her friends, most of whom were 26-year-old, very self-sufficient, very smart, very likable but very independent 
and not dependent upon God people. Um, maybe one in a hundred would consider themselves a Christian. There were 1,500 people at my sister's memorial. That's the kind of person she was. She was very uh, much a lover of all people. And so this message was for them. And the gist of the message was ask them to consider Jesus. Um, and if you've been around here much, you see that's an important word still to this day. Consider Jesus. I didn't tell anybody about this message that I'd received. It was seared in my mind and my heart. I didn't even write it down. <laughs> I knew exactly what to say. Two weeks passed, and it was the eve of her memorial service. All I had asked was, I told the pastor, the pastor we grew up with, I said, I just need a couple minutes. I didn't tell him what I was going to say, or he was later mad at me that I <laughs> didn't tell him what I was going to do. But, um, and that night, it was about midnight, I started to get nervous because I'm a human. And I thought, what if, what if the emotions are too much and I can't deliver Kim's message? So I started scribbling down the message, and I just kept writing over and over again, consider Jesus, consider Jesus. Don't wait to consider Jesus. And I thought to myself, in my humanity, I wonder if I can find a better word than consider. And so I pulled out the, the computer, and I started searching for synonyms for this word consider. And it's in that study that I discovered uh, that actually this is kind of a special word. It means, in the English, to think about in order to make a decision. And that's important as well. When we ask people to consider Jesus, it's to think about Jesus and what he's done and who he claimed to be in order that you might make a decision. It's not unending consideration with no decision making. So to consider is to think about in order to make a decision. And then I started to study deeper, and I saw that the root of this English word the etymology of the word consider comes from two Latin roots. The first is com, which means with, and the second is sideris, which means heavenly body. So to think about in order to make a decision with heavenly body. I shut the computer, I slept deeply in full trust and faith that this was a word from God shared the message to the 1,500 that were there. Uh, many were impacted. Many have considered. All remember that day God showed up in a powerful way. Heaven came down, met with us. I didn't think much of it. I thought I'd done my job. God had asked me to share this message from my sister. I'd shared it. I thought that would be it. I'd go back to my life. And it was about eight to ten months later. I can't remember that I was reading my Bible and I came across 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And once again, God reaffirmed both my interpretation of this message to consider Jesus with heavenly body and my calling to continue to ask people to do this. So I'll just, I'm going to read the whole chapter like I've been doing the last three weeks because I want to I wanna get it in your brain. But I'm just going to read you the verse that popped out to me. Verse 40 says this. Chapter 15, verse 40 says this. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies. But the splendor of the heavenly bodies is different than that of the earthly bodies. The most amazing promise, what makes the good news good, is that we don't just live once. We live twice. We only live once after death and we either are given a new heavenly body that is like Jesus' resurrected body or we are separated from that goodness to be a part of some other existence that I want no part of. And when I saw these verses, I, I didn't know these verses when I saw that considerment with heavenly body. It just made sense to me. I'd grown up, I'd heard the gospel, I'd understand de death, resurrection, We'd have these new physical resurrected body just like Jesus was physically raised from the dead. We too would be physically raised from the dead. I never knew about this verse and then I saw this verse and it began to click for me. This is what God was calling me to do. To help people consider with their heavenly body, their resurrected body, 
their eternal self in every decision that they make today. It's as simple as that. That's the mission that I'm on. You don't want to be a part of that? You're going to get real sick of hearing me say, consider with your heavenly body. That's what it is. My sister Kim, if you knew her, her earthly body was about as perfect as an earthly body could be. I'm not saying this to brag. She was valedictorian of her high school and conference basketball player of the year. Her brain worked really well. All of her limbs and fingers and toes worked really well. She was as healthy as you could possibly be. She was into long-distance cycling and triathlon running with her husband, Patrick. And it was on one of her training rides that she was hit by a truck and killed instantly. The promise of this is whether you've got a really good earthly body or yours has fallen apart, God will give you a new body at the resurrection of the dead. Not because of anything you've done, but because of everything he's done. And if that's true, what would it mean to live every day in this mortal coil as if that promise is coming to pass sooner or later? Friends, it should change everything. Every decision will be different. Every day will feel different. Every year. Have you considered? Have you asked those you love to consider if all this is true? So this is very personal to me. And I want it to be personal for all of us. Paul just said in the verse right before this section we're going to focus on today, which starts in verse 35. In verse 34, what does he say? He says, come to your senses. Stop sinning. And then he says, for some people are ignorant about God. I say this to your shame. That was me. Before my sister died, I was living for myself. Yes, I said I believed in Jesus. Yes, I was trusting in his promises for me personally. But to be honest, I could care less if others were ignorant about God. And when death came to my doorstep, when it took somebody away from me that I thought was a superhero, I realized how much I needed God and how much everyone needed God. Not just when they're old and dying, but when they're 26 and thriving. You are not promised the next breath, which is why we say thank you, God, for this moment. And I've said again and again, I don't want anyone to have to lose a sister before they start considering the promises of God. You can help me. <laughs> I mean, I thought about preaching this to you. This is definitely for you. But even more than that, you're pretty committed here. The day after many, many Halloween parties, you showed up to church, people. You're considering. You're doing it. But who in your life is not considering? Who needs to be reminded of the goodness of God and the promise of eternity? Who needs to, for the first time, consider that Jesus Christ came, God in the flesh, died for their sin to remove their guilt and shame, and on the third day rose again to a new life that he then promises to, that, to give to anyone who puts their trust in him. Who in your life needs to consider this truth? And how will they consider if they don't hear? And how will they hear if no one tells them? They will remain to be ignorant to this good God who loves them and gave his own son for them. So this is personal. And we can't leave the resurrection out of it, Paul says. All of 1 Corinthians 15 is, is geared up to the centrality of the resurrection. What was happening in Corinth was people were like, ah, I like the guilt and the shame thing going away, but this resurrection thing, this is hard to tell my friends. It sounds kind of weird. Paul says, no, without the resurrection, it's all in vain. 
we're all dead in our sin. If Christ is still buried in the grave, then there is no resurrection. If there is no resurrection, then not even Christ has risen. If Christ hasn't risen, then we won't rise. If we don't rise, then what's the point? Let's all eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. So we said at the outset of this five-week study of this one chapter that the resurrection of the dead is central to the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. We said that it's certain. The resurrection is certain. Paul says, listen, there's all these eyewitnesses. 500 plus people saw Jesus physically risen from the dead. You can even go talk to some of them. Most of them are still alive. So it's certain. He's he's telling us it's a collective experience. It didn't just happen for one man, Jesus. It happens for all. We will all rise from the dead. He says, and this is this week we're focusing on it, there's a cosmic nature to this. It's something quite spectacular when you see it for what it is. And then he's saying, but don't be confused. Yes, there's continuity between the the old body and the new body. There's continuity talk about that today but there's also discontinuity what he's saying is there's a polarity between earth and heaven they're not the exact same thing praise be to God so there's continuity and discontinuity and then he says and then there's consequences because of this truth about the resurrection there's consequences so I just want to remind you I found a couple of great quotes this week on the centrality of the resurrection just in case you weren't here the last couple weeks I just want to come back to this um, there is um, a commentator named Anthony uh, Thistleton, and he retranslates the very beginning of 1 Corinthians 15. So let me just read that to you, and then we'll end up reading the rest of it too. 1 Corinthians uh, 1.15 says this, Now I want to make clear to you, brothers and sisters, the gospel I preached to you, which you received, on which you have taken your stand, and by which you are being saved. There's this idea of this ongoing salvation that's happening when we stand on the truth of the gospel, which is the death and the resurrection of Jesus. If you hold to the message I preach to you, and then he says, unless you believed in vain. Now, we've talked about that a couple weeks ago, the three different words he uses for, that often are translated in vain. I like how Anthony Thistleton translates this himself. He's, he, he retranslates that verse. He says, through the gospel, you are in the process of being saved if you hold fast to the substance of the gospel that I proclaimed to you, unless you believed without coherent consideration. (laughs) You see why I like his translation. Unless you received it without coherent consideration. Now, I bring this up only to say, some of you may have received the gospel or called yourself a Christian, or you might have friends that are like this, that actually never had a coherent consideration of the good news. This is so many people. And if you're here reconsidering coherently, amen. God has prepared you, he's brought you here for this moment to have a coherent consideration of the death and the resurrection of Jesus. And I hope today that something about the resurrection makes more sense than it ever did. Because maybe you're like the Corinthians who were kind of taking this part of the gospel out. This part of the message, because it was kind of weird to them. They were kind of embarrassed by it. They didn't really understand how it could possibly happen. Paul's going to go into that today. But we need to consider coherently and honestly the resurrection of the dead. So, the death and resurrection is the gospel. And it's the central tenet of the peculiar wisdom of of God in Christ. Like, if you don't understand death and resurrection, the peculiar wisdom of Christ won't make any sense to you. He'll ask you to do things that require you to die to yourself or give some of yourself away so that some other life might come about. That's the peculiar wisdom of the gospel. And you can say, I thought God wanted only good for me. He does. He wants a kind of good for you that's only possible when you die to something or someone. Like, that's the peculiar nature of it. And so sometimes we ask, well, God, why would you ever allow Dave's sister Kim to be taken off the face of the earth? It doesn't make any sense to me, honestly. If you knew her, if I was just picking teams, you'd pick her, not me. But the peculiar wisdom of Christ is doing something that I can't quite understand. 
though it makes sense in light of what he did through his son Jesus. Because that didn't make any sense to me at first glance either. So there's going to be something in your life that you have to die to in order to experience the life that God has planned for you. That's the peculiar wisdom. And so you have to have death and resurrection. That's the central tenet of peculiar wisdom. Karl Barth, famous uh, theologian, um, back in the, the, the early part of the 20th century, said this, well, about the, uh, the middle of the 20th century, said this. He said, the resurrection forms not only the close and the crown of the whole epistle. He's talking about 1 Corinthians. It's not just like the closing remarks or the crown jewel that's put on top. He says this, but it also provides the clue to the meaning of the whole epistle from which light is shed on the whole as a unity. So we've been saying this as we've been going. You go back if you haven't listened to all of it, and you won't, I mean, Paul makes some pretty harsh rebukes at times, some really stern encouragements about changing the way they're living. It won't make sense unless you understand chapter 15. It's the clue. It unlocks everything about living the Christian life now. We'll talk about that today. So, justification by grace, we love that idea, that we are justified in the sight of God. We are made clean and holy and righteous and worthy to be in the same room as God. By grace, meaning it's a gift, nothing we can do, we can't work for it. We love that, justification by grace. But also, it's the resurrection of the dead that fills out the fullness of what the gospel is. So, justification by grace and the resurrection of dead are two sides of the same coin. So we got to talk about them both, Paul's going to say. Um, Bart also says this. He says, 1 Corinthians 15 could better be described as the methodology of the Apostle Paul's preaching <laughs> rather than eschatology. It's the nerve of the whole. Meaning like, and I laugh when I say that because when I read that I was like, that's me! <laughs> it's like, it is, 1 Corinthians 15 is the nerve in every other thing I'll preach for the rest of my time as a preacher. That's why this is an important one for me, that you understand this. The Apostle Paul, everything he preached comes from this nerve of the resurrection. He said, because the resurrection is true, all these other things are true. It's the nervous system. And so to not make it your nervous system will mean you'll malfunction as a follower of Jesus. If, if your nervous system isn't wired in the resurrection. So Paul's not just talking about, oh, this nice little theology of the end, what will happen at the end of time, though this has implications for that. He's actually saying, no, that thing that happens at the end of time, it's the nerve that runs every day I live. Everything I preach is because of the nerve of the resurrection. I pray to God that would be true of my preaching as well. So Paul, in past sermons, has said, and as we read it, you'll, you'll hear this as well, if we are most pitied of all people, if the resurrection is not true, he'll say that. He's like, if it's not true, Christians should be the most pitied. The world should look at Christians and say, oh, poor little Christian. They've given up so much for something that's not true. So if we're the most to be pitied, then doesn't it follow that if it were true, we should be the most excited, energetic and hopeful people on the face of God's green earth, right? Do you find that to be true when you hang out with Christians? The funniest thing, I was going to share this at the beginning. I'll share it now because I told my wife I'd share it. I've been telling her she should name the soup night the porridge party. <laughs> because if you've ever done the alpha course, which we're going to start one in, in, in January, this is a great thing to bring somebody who's considering or reconsidering Christianity. Bring them to this. It's like a 10-week course it gets at the basic tenets of Christianity and, and talks about the meaning of life and all these things. But anyhow, Nicky's this great British guy, and he, and he, and he tells the story about when he was in college uh, studying to be a barrister, which is a form of lawyer, if you didn't know that, that argues in the courtroom. He said, when I was studying to that, I met some Christians, and they invited me to a porridge party. And I thought it was the most boring idea I'd ever heard. And then he says, and then I became a Christian, and I went to a porridge party, and it was so fun. <laughs> so if you come to Alpha, you'll get a lot of that. And it, 
It's so true. Before you're a Christian, you think the idea of a soup night is just the most boring idea that you could ever think of. But then you come to one of these soup nights, and you're like, it was so fun. If you understand the resurrection of Jesus. Soup becomes fun. When you're sitting around a table with a bunch of other human beings who God will raise from the dead and you'll live for eternity with them. How good does that soup taste now? To know you'll get a chance to eat soup after soup, bread after bread for all eternity. Even the porridge party becomes fun when you understand the resurrection. I mean, this is, this is the heart. Why aren't we the most excited people in all the earth? I don't think we believe in the resurrection. Okay. Today, Paul is going to address misplaced skepticism. I don't want to beat you over the head if you have a hard time believing in the resurrection. I get that it's hard to understand. And the Corinthians struggled with it too. So they had deep skepticism about it. There's three things I'll talk about today. They lacked a desire for the resurrection. And we'll see why. Number two, there was an inconceivability about the resurrection that led to skepticism. And then there was a dubiousness about the resurrection, which is, how in the world could this actually happen? Can it be done? All this led to the skepticism, even within the church. So this is why the church was going off and doing all these strange things, trying to get as much out of life now as they could, while also maybe hedging their bets by saying they followed Jesus. So I'm going to read the whole chapter. I'm going to read it fast, because I want more time to talk. Okay, here we go. Ready? But I want you to hear the whole argument. And then we'll jump into verses 35 to 50 after we read it. Here it is. Now I want to make clear, this is incredible. My eyesight literally came back. I brought my glasses and I can now read it perfectly. Praise be to God. No, seriously, like I was looking at it, I was like, I can't read a single word and now I can read them. I don't know how this stuff works. Okay, here we go. Now I want to make clear to you, brothers and sisters, the gospel that I preached to you, which you received, on which you have taken your stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold to the message that I preached to you. Unless, of course, you believed in vain, or as we said, without coherent consideration. For I passed on to you of most importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, then to the twelve, that's the disciples. Then he appeared to over 500 brothers and sisters at one time. Most of them are still alive. You can go talk to them, but some have fallen asleep. They've died. Then he appeared to James, that's his brother, then, who was, by the way, a huge doubter when Jesus was alive, then to all the apostles, which is a larger group, the disciples plus some. Last of all, as to one who was born at the wrong time, he also appeared to me, Paul, for I am the least of the apostles, not worthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. Paul was putting Christians in jail and um, killing them. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and, by, and his grace towards me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Whether then, whether then it is I or they, so we proclaim and so you have be- believed. Proclaimed what? The true gospel, which includes death and resurrection. Then he goes on. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our proclamation is in vain. And so is your faith. Moreover, we have, found, we have been found to be false witnesses about God because we have testified wrongly about God that he indeed did raise up Christ, whom he did not raise up, if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. Those then who have fallen asleep, those who have died in Christ, have also perished. If we have put our hope in Christ for this life only, we should be pitied more than anyone. But, the great but, remember we talked about this, the great but, one T, the great but. But, as it is, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. 
For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead also comes through a man. For just as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. But each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, afterward, at his second coming, those who, who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when... Jesus hands over the kingdom of God to God the Father when he abolishes all rule and all authority and power. For he must reign until he puts all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be abolished is death. For God has put everything under his feet. Now when it says everything is put under his feet, it's obvious that he who puts everything under him, under Jesus, is the exception. God the Father is the exception. When everything is subject to Christ, then the Son himself will also be subject to the one who subjected everything to him, so that God may be all in all. Otherwise, if we don't believe in the resurrection, otherwise, what will they do who are being baptized for the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, then why are people baptized? Why are we in danger every hour? I face death every day. As surely as I may boast about you, brothers and sisters, in Christ Jesus our Lord. If I fought wild beasts in Ephesus as, a mere ma- Ephesus as a mere man, what good did that do for me if the dead are not raised? Let us eat, drink, for tomorrow we die. But do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. Come to your senses. Stop sinning, for people are ignorant about God. And I say this to your shame. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? This is, our, this is our section for this week. But how are the dead raised? What kind of body will they have when they come? You fool! What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And as for what you sow, you are not sowing the body that will be, but only a seed, perhaps of wheat or another grain. But God gives it a body as he wants, and to each of the seeds its own body. Not all flesh is the same. There is one flesh for humans, another for animals, another for birds, another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the splendor of the heavenly bodies is different from that of the earthly bodies. There is a splendor of the sun, another of the moon, another of the stars. In fact, one star differs from another star in splendor. Ask Anne about this. She studies rocks on Mars. If you've never met Anne. Okay. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. Sown in corruption, raised in incorruption. Sown in dishonor, raised in glory. Sown in weakness, raised in power. Sown a natural body, raised a spiritual body. If, it were, if, if there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. So it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being, or you could say a living soul. The last man became a, a life-giving spirit. However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural, then the spiritual. The first man, Adam, was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. Like the man of dust, so are those who are of the dust. Like the man of heaven, so are those who are of heaven. And just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we will also bear the image of the man of heaven. Wow. What? What I'm saying, verse 50, brothers and sisters, is this. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor can corruption inherit incorruption. Flesh and blood is just an idiom, a Jewish idiom for this fallen, decaying, sinful body, okay? He's not talking about flesh generally because the kingdom of God will be of a a, a material and immaterial kingdom, not just an immaterial. He's just saying this fallen flesh can't inherit the kingdom of God because corruption can't inherit incorruption. Listen, I'm telling you a mystery. We will not all fall asleep, but we will all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible and we will be changed. For this corruptible body must be clothed with incorruptibility and this mortal body must be clothed with immortality When the corruptible body is clothed with incorruptibility and this mortal body is clothed with immortality, then the saying that is written will take place. Death has been swallowed up by victory. Where, death, is your lasting victory? Where, death, is your lasting sting? Sting, or or the sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. 
Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, be steadfast, immovable, always excelling in the Lord's work because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. But some of you will ask, back to verse 35, how are the dead raised? What kind of body will they have when they come? This is a fair question. This is a totally fair question. It, it, it's hard to, what, what, what do you mean? What do you mean? What do you mean they'll come back? Okay? I don't know if I want that, honestly, right? Paul may have a specific person in mind or a specific question. He's probably just using a rhetorical device here of an interlocutor, which is like a, a, a person he's interacting with. It's sort of a compilation of all the skepticism that's in Corinth or in the world. So he's saying, like, that's a fair question. A skeptic would ask, what kind of body will we have? Now, this is the first point. Paul is going to um, go after uh, the first of the three I told you about, which is the desirability of the resurrection. There wasn't a real desire for it. Why? There was this thought, we talked about this before, uh, this duality in uh, Jewish Hel- or, uh, Greek Hellenism, which is, okay, when we die, if, if we did believe in an afterlife, we die, we get rid of this corrupt, bad body, ba- body is bad, material is bad, and we get to be sort of spirits floating in the clouds. And so here comes this Paul talking about this resurrection of the dead. And so, you know, with a lack of imagination, you could think, that's, I don't know. I mean, my loved ones who have been decaying in the ground or maybe died in war, they're going to just like reanimate and come back to life like zombie? Like that is not good news to me. That's scary. So wait, we're going to still eat and defecate? And I kind of like the whole thing where we get rid of the gross body and we get to just be sort of floating around. You see that? Wait, you mean we're going to bleed and bruise? Like, ah, I don't know if I want that. (laughs) You know, so what we're just recycling our bodies like how many trips do we have to do this you see what I'm saying like there is this notion when we think sometimes about resurrection that I don't know if it's that desirable I kind of like maybe the old notion or kind of maybe how I thought it as a kid if I get to like like Grayson my seven year old always asked me can we fly in heaven and I'm, I'm like probably not <laughs> he's like dang <laughs> like that would be fun and I'm like yeah I get that. <laughs> but this is what's going on, right? Like, like we have this like, very Halloween idea of the resurrection. Like people are crawling through you know, the dirt. You know, I'm like, that is not what I think is going to happen. But I understand that some do. And so Paul is going to address this. He's going to be, guys, that's, whatever you're thinking, this weird reanimating of dead bodies, that's not what we're talking about when we talk about the resurrection. Okay, so what are we talking about? <laughs> This is the problem. How do, how do we have a desire, a desire for the resurrection? We have to understand what the promise actually is. So I, I, I understand. That's a little embarrassing to talk about it like that. So how should we talk about it? How should we talk about it? Here's what Paul says. Verse 36. Again, I don't think he's talking about any one person in particular, but a hypothetical questioner, skeptic. He says, you fool. <laughs> okay. Now, it doesn't, it's not as harsh in the Greek as you would think. Perhaps a better translation would be, you blockhead who lacks imagination. <laughs> okay, maybe it is. I don't know what's better. You blockhead who lacks... He's saying, you lack imagination. You can't get those horror movies out of your head when you think about resurrection. That is such an earthly way to think about resurrection. So much better than that. And he's going to go on to say, nature itself provides many parables, analogies, models for the resurrection that aren't like that. He's going to talk about this seed, right? We read about that, the seed. Seed must die before it can become what? A beautiful new tree. He's going to say like, that's not like zombies. So he's going to use lots of, he's going to say there's lots of parables, analogies, and models for the resurrection that are desirable. And then he's going to say, well, whether we can conceive of it or not, in the end, That's sort of irrelevant as the creator who is the creative one. He's the one who performs the act, not us. Praise be to God. It's not our job to resurrect people because we know that wouldn't turn out well. 
but this is God who created all things. So he's going to talk about that. We'll get to that in a sec. And then he says this. He says, we should be thankful that it's hard to conceive of the resurrection and what these bodies will be like. We should be thankful that it can be a little bit difficult because we wouldn't want to be able to understand it with our finite, feeble minds. He's saying, we want considerable contrast between the pre-resurrection body and the post-resurrection body. Right? I know I do. He's saying, it's actually a good thing that this is a little bit challenging to understand and desire. Don't give up. Press in. And then he will go on, look at verse 42. He'll give us some descriptions. He'll say, so it is with the resurrection of the dead. The new resurrected body, what it'll be like. He said, what was sown in corruption will be raised in incorruption. What will be what's sown in dishonor will be raised in glory. What is sown in weakness will be raised in power. What is sown in natural body will be raised in spiritual body. Again, spiritual there does not mean immaterial. It means a fully integrated physical body. And we'll talk about it in a second with the Spirit of God dwelling with you. So that sounds pretty good to me. Incorruptible, glory, power, spiritual body, just like what? The man of heaven, he'll go on to say. Well, that's something I desire. This word glory here can also mean splendor. And he uses it right after talking about the stars differ in, in splendor or glory. So some stars have our twinkle a little bit stronger. So that's like our heavenly body is going to twinkle in a way that our earthly body just can't. So splendor can mean impressive, weighty, majestic, radiant, light, luminosity. This new body, this resurrected body, is more than physical, Paul says. But not less than physical. So when you go and study the the resurrection accounts of Jesus, his body is fully physical. Like, Like Thomas, doubting Thomas, can like touch and see the scars in his hands and he eats with them and the fish doesn't just like fall through <laughs> to the ground, okay? So it's like a fully physical body, but it's more than physical. Meaning like weird things happen, like the door's locked and Jesus stands among them, amongst them. Okay, how, how does a physical body do that? See, it's more than physical, but not less than physical. Are you getting excited about these new heavenly bodies? There's an inter- I, just, I just want to point this out. My favorite verse here, verse 40, which says, There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the splendor of the heavenly bodies is different from those of the earthly. There's a debate between scholars, and I'll end the debate right now. They say, like, are they talking? <laughs> I'm not a scholar, so I can't end any debate. But, um, nor would I want to, because I want people to read this. Some will say, okay, he's talking here about heavenly bodies, like the resurrected body, like the way I talk about it. And then some will say, well, he goes right in after this to talk about the sun and the moon and the stars, which are the heavenly bodies. That's what they call the, the sun and the moon and the stars. Everything up in space are the heavenly bodies. I think, both's, I think both's true here. This is a hinge verse. He's hinging from talking about uh, animal flesh and human flesh and bird flesh and fish flesh to talking about stars and the moon and the sun. And I think he's doing it intentionally. I think there's a double meaning here. He's saying, actually, our just like you're a little bit like fish now, you'll be a lot more like the sun in your new heavenly body. But I think he's playing on words here. He wants us to see that whatever these new heavenly bodies are, they will be more like the splendor when you look up. When you look up at the stars. Whatever feeling you get there, that's what the heavenly bodies will be like, the resurrected bodies as compared to when you see, you know, a rotting fish that's drifted up on shore. That's how different the feeling will be. Paul is definitely saying that the resurrection bodies are more transcendent and magnificent, like the sun, the moon, the stars, than anything we've experienced on earth. 
See, like the comparison would be like a candle to a supernova. They both give off light, but I can't tell you how much more amazing the new resurrected body will be. So Paul says, to the skeptic, I think you're desiring the wrong thing, which is why you're not desiring it at all. We have to understand the promise of what these new resurrection bodies will be. They're almost unbelievable. We've never seen anything like it. I can't wait. So the second thing he's going to attack or work through from the skeptic is the conceivability of the resurrection. So I might be able to convince you that we should desire this, but come on, Dave. That's really unintelligible. I cannot even conceive of this idea. So he's going to go after that. And he's going to use examples from the natural world. But remember, they don't have modern scientific explanations running through their mind when Paul's using these analogies. It's like nobody knows actually what happens when you put a seed in the ground. In the ground. <laughs> Except that with a little bit of watering and a little bit of time, a plant grows out, right? Like they don't understand it. Like I'm going to use an analogy here of, you know, how, do you, how, do, how does a child come into the world? Like I still don't understand it, but there are some people that kind of understand it. Back then, they had no idea. They just knew, eh, bump, bump, and then, woo. <laughs> but, like, they understood there's cause and effect. Like, they're not <laughs> ignorant. They're like, oh, never thought that would happen. Unlike today, where people, yeah, okay. That's another conversation. Like, this leads to that. Okay, so, just how we forget. Okay. So, they didn't have this scientific explanation, but they understood that, these strange things could happen. So Paul's going to use that. Look at verse 37. What does he say? He says, As for what you sow, you are not sowing the body that will be, but only a seed. And he's using it perhaps of wheat or another grain. He's not saying you're wheat or another grain. He's using the analogy of you put a wheat seed in the ground. But God gives it a body as he wants, and to each of the seeds, its own body. Okay, so... Obviously, some of, some of you understand agriculture. Everybody back then would understand this analogy. And it is kind of inconceivable, unless you've seen it happen over and over again. Wait, if I put this tiny little thing in the ground, wait a few months, this other thing starts to grow, and it could grow really, really big. I think Paul probably, I'll give a shout-out to Jessica and our cohort talked about this. Paul probably has the mustard seed parable in mind. Jesus told the famous mustard seed parable. He says, this mustard tree or bush has a seed that's smaller than any other seed. He says, that, that's what faith is like. Let me just read it. Jesus said this. He said, he said, the kingdom of heaven is like a grain of a mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It's the smallest of all the seeds, but when it has grown, it is larger than all of the other garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. Okay, Paul's probably got this in mind. One of the most famous teachings of Jesus. This really big tree or bush or wheat grass comes from this tiny seed that must die in the ground to bring forth this new, seemingly unrelated kind of life, right? Like if you just saw a pic, like if two people said, uh, this guy and this guy are related, you'd be like, no way. Maybe distant cousins. <laughs> like, no, actually this is the offspring of this. What? It's almost inconceivable. But wait, we know it. We've seen it happen over and over again. So it's not inconceivable. That's what Paul's saying. Speaking of inconceivability, try explaining to a seven-year-old. My son asks me this all the time. How are babies conceived? I say, talk to Pastor Ryan. He's really good. He's got older kids. <laughs> and you can send your kids to Pastor Ryan. He'll take care of this for you. 
It's a full stop shop here at Sedaris. We'll have the talk. We know now by modern science that God's creativity in creating a human being is both natural and honestly supernatural. Meaning there's all kind of new things that we understand about what's happening, right? We can kind of understand how the sperm, which is the seed, interacts with the egg, which is another kind of seed, and turns into all of this. Like this, I came from a seed, tiny, microscopic. That's crazy, but conceivable, and more conceivable now than maybe when Paul was writing. But still, to be honest, it's pretty crazy that the sperm and the egg led to all of this. There's a lot of this. Like, that's kind of hard to believe, but also not, because we've seen it happen over and over again. It's natural and supernatural. So all the DNA from my mom and all the DNA from my dad somehow mixed together to make all of this. Yes, that's how it works. That's crazy, but I can kind of see. So all over the natural world, we have these sorts of analogies pointing. Now, look at verse 38. What does he say? He says, but God gives it a body as he wants into each of the seeds its own body. So there is this very like personal, like God chooses what kind of, like he chooses that the mustard seed leads to the mustard tree. He chooses that mom and dad's uh, seeds lead to all of this. Like he, he did choose that. And, and it highlights, again, this is getting to conceivability, it's highlighting this idea See, he says, its own body. So the seed, its own body, the tree. What is he saying? Its own, he's saying it has the same identity. The same identity, what, what was in the seed is now in the tree. Its own body, but it has a new body, a fullness to the whole material and immaterial person. This is what it's talking about, this body. So the same self passes through different forms. I mean, just think about this. Think of a baby, and then an infant, and then a teenager, and then a middle-aged person, and then a fragile, dying, elderly person. The same self. The same self. Though the vehicle is changing, and sometimes might be unrecognizable, it is still the same identity. The same self, even as the body, the exterior changes. Sometimes it takes a surprising feature to recognize it, like someone's voice. Like if you don't see somebody for 50 years, but then they say your name. Oh, amazing. It's you. I had this experience. I played in a golf tournament, a fundraiser golf tournament for my son's school. And I sat down next to this guy who was in my foursome. Just totally by chance. Nobody else knew this. Actually, two people in my foursome I grew up with. Crazy. And I sat next to them, and they looked at me. I said, hey, my name's Dave Evanger. They go, Evanger. And I, I swear to God, I looked at him. I said, hey. <laughs> and you know what I'm doing. I'm like, I don't know you. Stop stalking me. You know, like, I literally did not know who they were. It took about 10 minutes of talking. But one guy introduced himself. He was my my brother-in-law, he was in my brother-in-law's wedding. So I was like, oh, yeah. Okay, the other guy I had grown up from elementary school, junior high, high school. His name was Jim Renz. And it was about 15 minutes of talking to them, and then it clicked. It was his voice. I was like, Jim. He's like, yeah, I already, yeah, you already said you knew me. And I was like, no, I have to admit, confession, confession. I didn't know you from Adam. And now it clicked. Have you had that experience? I hadn't seen him in 20, probably 21 years since high school ended. He looked totally different. This is what a grown-up Jim Renz looks like? No one would ever have expected. Seriously. Jim Renz. Oh, it was awesome. But it's the same self. It's the same Jim. 
Turn, turns out, all of, his, all of his mannerisms, all these things, same gym. Slightly different vehicle. So, what I'm not saying is that it takes no faith to believe in these new resurrection bodies. And is part of God's plan. The same God, the same God who designed the processes for seeds to turn to trees, for sperm to turn into all of this, and so on and so on. It's the same God who brings the dead to life. It's still a mystery, Paul says, we read that, but not beyond comprehension. And perhaps only a fool could not see the signposts, sneak peeks, advertisements of the greatest miracle yet to be performed, the final miracle, the closing act, the crescendo, the finale, which when God brings his image bearers back to life. Perhaps it would take a lack of imagination to believe that the God who created all this other stuff could do that to his most beloved creation. Third argument to the skeptic, the doability of the resurrection. Okay, okay, maybe it's conceivable, but is it doable? I mean, it's one thing to conceive of it, make a movie about it. It's another thing to actually do it. Is it doable? Yes. Yes. Throughout this passage, I don't know if you saw it, Paul uses language of divine agency. Have you seen it? He said, God gives. He gives. God wills. God wills. He says these things are made alive. By who? By God. Is given life. By who? By God. And what has he done that for? Look at verse 39. He, he's done the same thing. He says not all flesh is the same. There's one for humans, another for animals, another for birds, another for fish. He's like, listen, God is in the business of giving bodies that fit the environment that they're in. So fish need a certain kind of body to live in water. And birds need a certain kind of body to survive in the air. And animals need a certain kind of body to, to survive in their habitats. Like God is the great creator who gave a different kind of body so that anyone can survive in the environment they're in, including heaven. So you don't think God could give a heavenly body so that you could survive in heaven? Of course he could. He's shown it a billion times over that he knows exactly what each body needs to survive. And he'll do the same. These differing bodies show that our creator God is not lacking creativity or power to accomplish what he wants, which is the resurrection of the dead, to live in the new heavens and new earth alongside of him. Martin Luther, the great reformer, said this. He said, to deny the resurrection is to deny far more. Namely, to deny that God is God. In Psalm 14 and 53, the psalm starts, You fool, you who deny God. I think Paul's adding to that here. You fool, who denies the creative power of God to recreate in any way he'd like. Paul definitely sees that these are related. He says, look to the natural world. Stop denying the obvious, the personal creativity baked into everything in this world, in this universe. Even the sun and the moon and the stars have this personal creativity baked in. So to choose to deny the creativity pregnant in the idea of the resurrection is to deny God as God. You have a very small view of this God. You need to look up and see the world around you and start to see how big God is. Paul says, of course God could bring new, better life from this kernel, this seed of humanity, which is dead and must be buried in order to come to life. He says, don't worry, you won't be zombies. You'll be greater than any creation he's ever made. It will be a new creation. With continuity to the old, you'll recognize at least something about, about yourself and about others may take some time, because they'll be so glorious and so splendid. But it's continuity, but discontinuity will be so much better than anything we've experienced. So here's my question to you. Do you consider God creative enough? Do you consider God creative enough to raise anyone into this new type of eternal life? If you answer yes... Have you shared this 
with those who may not know this? If you knew this and didn't share this, can you claim to love that person? I came to the conclusion I couldn't. Which is why for 15 years I've been asking people to consider this. Still hard. But it's love. Just as clearly as you see that God can make different kinds of flesh in this earthly realm, so too God can make different kinds of bodies for us in the realm to come. He's God, for goodness sake. That's just the way it is. So I desire it. It is conceivable, I guess. And I guess it's doable if God is God. Now, how does this doctrine of the heavenly body help me today? Well, Paul gets into this. He talks about the soul and the spirit. Verse 45. Very quickly, let me just... We broke this down a little bit last week about this old Adam and the new Adam, the first Adam and the last Adam, Adam and Jesus. But he says this, verse 45, So it is written, the first Adam, the first man Adam became a life, a living being. And actually that word being can, can actually be um, translated soul. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. Now both had bodies, both were physical, but he's distinguishing the soul and the spirit. What is he talking about here? Uh, soul is the word psyche. Psyche. Like psych- psychology. Psychiatric care. It's soulish. It's equated with the natural in Scripture, the earthly or the worldly. It's the sense, it's, the, it's life driven by the senses. So it is, so there's this recognition that it's, it's immaterial and material, right? But it's lacking this supernatural, divine spark. And that's what spirit is. Pneumatikos, which means spiritual or spirit-filled divine life that Jesus had. And he's talking about the Holy Spirit. Now, here's, what I want, here's how I want to connect the seed idea with the spirit idea. He said the first Adam, yes, had a soul, complex soul, all these desires and senses, and a very spiritual person, you could even say. So I don't want you to get hung up on spiritual, because there's a lot of people in Seattle who have spiritual people. They're soul people, you could say, soulful. But Jesus, the man of heaven, is something different. He's a spirit person. And what Paul's saying here is the seed is the Holy Spirit. Seed is the Holy Spirit. Do you have the Holy Spirit? Do you have the seed of the man of heaven? This life now is a life of sowing the seed of the Holy Spirit into your dying flesh so that your dying flesh becomes a seed pregnant with eternal life. Yes, it must die, and for most of us it will die, but then it can come alive like Jesus' body came alive. And this is the thing we, we miss. The Holy Spirit's role in the resurrection is often overlooked. Look at verse 4 of chapter 15. Real quick, real quick. Verse 4 says this. Okay, so he died for our sins, according to the scriptures, that he was buried... That he was raised on the third day, according to the scripture. He was raised. So sometimes we think Jesus raised himself. No, no, no. Paul's very clear here. He was raised by what? God the Father sent the Holy Spirit to raise Jesus from the dead. In the same way that God the Father and now God the Son, Jesus, sends the Spirit to raise us from the dead. It's the seed. Just as Christ could not even raise himself, we cannot raise ourselves the Spirit of God. God the Spirit must raise us from the dead. Romans 8, 11 says this, And if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you, then he who raised Christ from the dead will also bring your mortal bodies to life through his Spirit who lives in you. Praise be to God. The same spirit that rose Jesus is in you. If you have trusted and received in Jesus, if you haven't, you can receive him today. Which means you have to willingly say, I want the spirit to rule my life rather than my soul. 
So Adam was moved by his soul, where Christ is moved by the Spirit. Romans 8 again, 23 says this, that we are the first fruits of the Spirit. We are displaying the first fruits of the Spirit. I'll read it. Not only that, but we ourselves who have the Spirit are the first fruits. We also groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for adoption, the redemption of our bodies. So we have the Spirit, the seed is alive. It wants more of heaven now, but it groans because it has, to, it has to fight against this old self and this world filled with just soulful people and not spirit people. So while Jesus is the man of heaven, Paul says we, uh, he is the embodied man with the life-giving spirit. And even as we await our new bodies, this old body is still the tabernacle of the same spirit that will be in the new body. So this is the already and the not yet. We already have the, the spirit like Jesus is, and we're still waiting for the body. That's why there's this groaning and this, this struggle that always happens. So that's, that's normal. It doesn't mean you don't have the spirit. It means you're still awaiting the new resurrection body. So here's the question I want you to ask yourself. What drives you? The soulish parts of you? The psyche parts of you? Are you a slave to your psyche? Or are you a slave to the spirit of God? What drives you? What moves you? Which part of you makes decisions? Which part of you considers? The psyche or the Spirit of God in you? If you allow yourself to be controlled by the Spirit of God, not only are you storing up for yourself eternal reward, which is your new heavenly resurrected body, but you are actually changing everything now about how you experience life. Eternal life starts now when you live in the Spirit. What kind of seed do you have? It will be the kind of body you have. Are you living by the seed of the Spirit? Mustard seed leads to mustard tree. Apple seed leads to apple tree. Seed of dust leads to dusty trees. <laughs> seed of heaven leads to heavenly tree. You see this? It's not, it's not rocket science. Though it's cosmic. <laughs> Your life, though withering away now, is, is headed towards death no matter what you do, but it can also be headed towards life, no matter what you do, if you're living by the seed of the Spirit. I recently watched this show, The Peripheral. Anybody seen this show? Amazon Prime, supporting local business. <laughs> it's all, okay, I'm not going to ruin it for you. They talk about it in the first episode. It's about this gal who thinks she's doing virtual reality is actually being transported into a body kind of like Westworld, into a body that's 70 years in the future. So she's very present in this moment. She has all these concerns, but she's also living this life 70 years later through this other animatronic body. I'm not saying that's what heaven's like. I'm just saying great analogy if you ever watch this. What I want you to do is with heavenly body, God wants you to be fully present in this moment and to make every decision with full weight and glory that, that is pregnant in every moment, how we live and, and choose. This is Jesus. He came to earth. But he also wants you to be transported in your mind and your heart to eternity and saying, if I knew, if myself now knew what I will know then, how would this self make decisions now? Again, there's signposts everywhere, including on this new Amazon Prime show. That we, it's not inconceivable. Because I can watch it and I'm not like, that's stupid. Like, I'm like, there's something there. What would it look like to be fully present of both the eternal and the momentary in the same breath? That's what it means to live like Jesus. Let's pray.